Hey, it's Larry. Uh, Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Real quick, before we get into this episode, I had such an amazing, eye-opening, life-changing experience at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto that I want others to have that opportunity, too. So Becca Miller and I and 24 of our PD community friends have launched a year-long WPC Travel Grant Fundraiser. We're each doing a two-week Facebook fundraiser. Mine's underway right now because my birthday's January 9th. All the money raised will be used to help offset travel costs so more people with young-onset Parkinson's can attend the next WPC in Barcelona in 2022. You can search out details on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's Facebook page or donate directly to the WPC website. Go to wpc2022.org slash yopdfund. If you or your business would like to supply matching funds... Hey, good on you. Email me at parkinsonspot at curiouscast.ca. And now, on with the show. Hi, my name is Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease, and I'm full of hope most days. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Joining me on this podcast journey is producer and reporter Nikki Reitmeyer. In this episode, we explore hope. What is it? How do you find it? Where does it come from? And why is it important? Larry, you're a hopeful guy. What does hope mean to you? I've been thinking about that. Hope is optimism. Mm. It's trust in the future. Uh, To me, it's a belief in things to come, a light at the end of the tunnel. And for some, it's religious. For some, it's not. I, I see it as agnostic. No religion, community, no person has the market cornered on hope. We all have access to it. Uh, for instance, I have hope that because of my Parkinson's, my life will become even more fulfilling, meaningful, and full of love. I also have hope that better and more effective treatments will be available one day, ones that are less invasive, and ideally a cure will be attainable in my lifetime. I gotta have hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> So it's it's spiritual, it's scientific, it's ethereal, it's earthbound. And we actually asked listeners of When Life Gives You Parkinson's on Facebook and Twitter what hope means to them. So we received those messages and we asked some of our coworkers here at the radio station to read those messages for us on this podcast. Hope changes. It's in those moments when you make new memories or learn something new about yourself. Hope is every time I freeze... I see my wife is there, ready to dance with me when I thaw. As a person with Parkinson's, hope is everything to me. I found hope through true acceptance of my diagnosis and through rock-steady boxing. Hope comes when I go to bed at night and looking back at the day I can say, it was a good day, let's hope tomorrow is as good. Oh, and in lemon pie, because I can still taste it. Lemon pie, right? Yes. Okay, cool. I (laughs) I love lemon pie. That's actually really neat hearing everyone's different perspectives of of what hope is. And that was just a a smattering of the response we got. I mean, there was so many people responding to that. And it's it's hopeful to think there's so much hope in the Parkinson's community. You know, it's funny because when you hear other people's messages of hope, no matter what you're going through in your own life, it kind of gives you more hope as well. It almost inspires you to have hope. But for you, where... Is the heart of that hope, you know, where is it generated from? Well, I mean, my hope as it relates to Parkinson's comes from you and our coworkers and my bosses and my wife and Henry and my family. I mean, you support me at work and they support me at home. This this whole season of the podcast, I've met so many people full of so much hope that it's it's hard not to feel it, too. I mean, each person in this crazy community of Parkinson's gives me hope. 
Hope is tricky, though, Nikki. It's an idea. You, you can't touch it, yeah. but you feel it. You can't see it, but it's in your eyes. You can't buy it and sell it unless you're trading stocks and hoping the market swings in your favor. <laughs> I mean, I, I have hope, but do I give it away, or do you take it from me when you're ready for it, or is it like a virus infecting people who brush up against it? I mean, there's a lot of questions here. <laughs> Jeez, you know I think it's almost the latter. I think it's one of those things that you go through life as a hopeful person and someone's going to meet you one day when they need hope and be able to gain it from you. And I think that's kind of cool. Well, like I, I got a lot of hope from meeting Dr. Matt Ferrer. Yeah. So uh, you'll remember him from the earlier episode. I dubbed him the Indiana Jones of genetic research. He found the first genetic connection to Parkinson's when everyone, everyone said there wasn't one. And it would be a waste of time to even look. This is a geneticist driven by hope. I've always been been an optimist. Every day I wake up happy and optimistic, and every night I go to bed depressed after that. <laughs> but but uh, um, but in the beginning, I, I thought it was. Um, I just thought I was in a brave and bold and perhaps rather stupid adventure to try and find genes for Parkinson's disease, and thought that was totally. A lot of people told me I was totally naive to even bother trying. Um, I should do something more useful instead. Um, and then we found the first gene, and then we found the second, and the third, and the fourth. In episode seven of this podcast, he took a spit sample of mine to sequence my genome. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Yeah. And he wanted to see if I had any known genetic connections to Parkinson's. I went back to the office to get the oh, results. Oh, cool. How abnormal am I? <laughs> well, genetically speaking, I think... Uh, We've all got interesting findings, right? And that's a nice way to couch it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. Um, seriously, there's a, there's there's as many genetic variants as there are stars in the sky, kind of thing. And and uh, it takes a lot of time to look through it all and, and uh, assess it. For known genes, there's not that many known genes. There's about seventy or so involved in Parkinsonism. You're totally wild type, which means normal, right? Um, I've been called worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. And um, and I went one further and I looked in genes that are been linked or associated with uh, with neurodegeneration because uh, that's Parkinson's one form of that. And and uh, and again, um, there's nothing anomalous, um, which is something I think could give you some peace of mind and and uh, your family some peace of mind at least. You know what it gives me? It gives me hope for you. I, I imagine you see this as an opportunity. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, I, don't know, I mean, I, I can use very um, inappropriate language sometimes. Sure. We prey upon people like you <laughs> to give us DNA samples um, so that we can make these discoveries. It's the whole point. If we, we found, for example, that you had a, um, a Parkin, one of the genes in Parkinson's disease, homozygous deletion or duplication, that's known already. That's not to my mind, that interesting and exciting. But for you personally, it might have been uh, more gratifying because you would have something that you could say, ah, aha, I, n- I know what the cause is now. I know what it is. I know why I got Parkinson's disease when I did. And I'm disheartened that I can't give that to you from the analysis that we've done so far. But at the same time, for me, um, it just is a lot more to explore. There's the potential there for a new gene finding. You are unusual. You are remarkable. Not just for the right reasons, because you have early onset Parkinson's disease. It's pretty rare. It's pretty unusual. It's fairly uncommon. And there's a reason for it. 
And the reason uh, lies in part, I hazard a guess, and I wager money on it, and I do all the time, um, in part it's due to genetics, and in part it's due to perhaps environmental risk, and in part it's just bad luck, right? But there's a, I think, especially in early onset disease, there's a big, uh, bigger genetic component. And, uh, and so it gives me hope that your genome is going to provide an answer, uh, not just for you, but for other people um, with your particular form of Parkinsonism. We'll, we'll find that piece. So of the 70 or so known genes that are related to Parkinson's, yeah. I come out clean. Yeah. How many other variances in my genes are we looking at now to see where else it might lie? Uh, we sequenced all 20,000 of your genes, and we found, I think, something in the order of 186,000 changes compared to uh, the reference. And of those 186,000, um, uh, many of them are quite frequent in the population, relatively frequent. We're seen in one in a thousand people, that type of frequency, and uh, may not have that much in, in terms of consequence. But it may be just a particular combination of two or three of these things together that tilts you over the edge, puts you over the edge. So you send all my information into the ether, yeah. and scientists, researchers around the world begin to add to the data points. That's right. So, so they can either extract the information and just look at it, or they can add their own information and look at it. It's meaningful, it's most meaningful when um, people look at it together in a collaborative sense. Um, I think it's really, I mean, I'm, I don't know, I'm the raggy trouser philanthropist in a way, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I want to give it all away because I hope that there's going to be a return. I think there's going to be a return. And um, to give you an illustration of that, last year we found a gene for early onset Parkinson's disease. And, uh, and it's because of the tools that we've built, of the sequencing we've done, and the collaborations over the years that we've, we've forged. It was with a group in Saskatchewan and with a group in Milan. And I didn't actually found it. The, the grad student in Milan put a finger on it and realized that from the genome sequences that are in our web-based tool, that there are two people with young onset Parkinson's disease that had specific damaging variants in the same gene. And the chances of having this, these were homozygous changes, so each, each of these patients actually had two damaging changes in each of the patients. The chances of finding that kind of combination together are infinitesimally small. So it had to be a gene for Parkinson's disease. And, um, and sure enough, it was. And since then, about 50 more families have been identified with mutations in the same gene. So it's out there. It just yeah. has to be put together. We know what my genome sequence is. Yeah. That's not going to change. No. Germline DNA. But if I come back in five years and we run this test, what yeah. happens? In five years or ten years' time, whatever, instead of being 71 genes, there's probably going to be 150, and then there's going to be different combinations of these, more than perhaps 150, maybe 150 just in Parkinson's disease, but we can very quickly look through all of that information again. Actually, in under one second, we can run that report and, um, and bring together all of that information, all that annotation from the world's resources to label up and annotate your genome and look at it afresh, to re-report on it. So if you think about it, like this is, this is what you've done for me is pure potential. We're planting a seed in the ground, and in five years, 
a tree yeah. could grow, we, we, we may be, it may bear fruit. Oh, yeah. I, I very much hope it will. I intend it to. <laughs> it, I, it is very much planting a seed. I think it's a nice analogy. Yeah, yeah it's a nice analogy. Man, Larry, technology is incredible, isn't it? It's amazing. And, and the, the idea that, yeah, I don't have a genetic connection that they know of, but in 5, 10, 15 years, I can go back. They can push a button and go, oh, look, here now, now here's a connection. And figure that out in a second. Right. That's it's incredible. Amazing. Yeah, no, truly remarkable. But from your own perspective, Larry, how important is hope as it relates to Parkinson's? I think it's extremely important. Uh, and believe it or not, there are studies about hope and Parkinson's. Really? Yeah. Uh, Wendy Eady is a facilitator of hope. That's her title, facilitator of hope. That's cool. At the University of Alberta. And before diving into the research, I, I asked her how she defines hope. What is hope? Well, uh, if you're getting a PhD, you will want to define hope. So there are perhaps a couple of thousand of definitions um, of hope. I think very simply of hope as uh, when you have hope, uh, you have the capacity to uh, think about the future and be okay. Uh, more complex definitions. Uh, one of my favorites would come from Charlotte Stevenson, who uh, who says that um, uh, that hope uh, involves the interaction of thinking, feeling, acting, and relating toward a future fulfillment that is personally meaningful. So what is personally meaningful? Well, I'm, I'm guessing that what is personally meaningful to you now as a person who has Parkinson's is probably quite a bit different than what might have been personally meaningful a few years ago. So hope is very context-specific. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how does a person like me with Parkinson's, an incurable progressive brain disease, cultivate hope? Uh, well, um, you have been, in fact, cultivating hope in your podcast, uh, kind of intentionally, I think, um, just not, perhaps not naming it um, all the time by uh, acknowledging, I guess, that, um, that the future is uncertain. So as you're dealing with uh, a disease like Parkinson's, what, is, what, is, what role does hope play uh, in the, you know, the, the quality of your life? Well, I think it, um, if you have hope, so if you're able to tolerate ideas about the future and be okay right now, which sometimes people aren't, especially when they first get the diagnosis, right? They just think of other people they've seen who have Parkinson's and, um, and everything seems really terrible. But um, then thinking directly about hope, uh, wondering about who gives you hope, what, what things give you hope, um, uh, if you're able to get used to talking about hope in the language of I hope, then uh, then you have some power over your situation, um, some idea that there are certain things in your world that you can control and so that you might as well. Uh, there are other things that you might like, uh, that you might or might not be able to have, but at, at, least, you could, uh, at least you could go towards them. Um, it, it gives you... Uh, kind of energy gives you something to focus on. It gives you something to speak to, and people are very tolerant of the hopes of others uh, as well. So it gives you a way to join with others. If we use the language of "I hope" to say, um, "I hope to continue 
working. Um, it's hard for your colleagues at work uh, to say, well, no, you can't, um, because they hope is a bit contagious. And if they know you're hoping for that, um, they can kind of join you in how you might do that. Whereas if, if you really are hoping to continue working, but, um, but you can't make that explicit for others, it's harder for them to join you uh, in that. So, so one thing about making hope explicit is that, that people can join you um, in making your hope happen. Of course, one thing that happens is that often people will use the language of I hope when they're not actually feeling hope. So they'll say, I hope I won't get fired because I have Parkinson's. Uh, and that's really not expressing much of a hope. It's far more expressing a fear that I will be fired because I have, uh, that I have Parkinson's. So uh, I hope to continue working is, uh, is a way of expressing something around which we can build the emotion uh, of hope. Yeah. I was, I was told by a friend in the Parkinson's community that she was part of a study that you conducted about hope and Parkinson's. Uh, yeah, was she a member of one of our groups? She was. Probably was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. So what can you tell me about, what was the intention of the study that you did? Uh, we were hoping at the end that they would have more well-being than they had at the beginning, that they would feel somehow um, more empowered to do whatever they could within uh, their situation. The process had some kind of incidental uh, personal benefits for me. I learned, though, how challenging it is for people to overcome um, or to, uh, to be okay alongside their fears about the future, which are pretty well-founded fears. So, um, so I, I certainly did notice how fear um, plays into it. And, um, and I also learned how I had to constantly work on my own hope, too, because, uh, because I was aware that um, people were going to be facing a future in which they would have uh, a constant adjustment to different kinds of losses that would keep on occurring. I'm thinking about, you know, every day for me is so different. And some days I wake mm-hmm. up full of hope, and some days I work, wake up just depleted of it. Yeah. How do I, how do I manufacture hope? Uh, I don't think you manufacture it, Larry. I think you look for where it's been in the past. You kind of develop the habit of looking for where it's been in the past and um, uh, uh, your own personal shorthand for how to get there in the future. Some people um, just go for a walk and actually look for hope and take photographs of it um, in whatever you saw and put it up on your wall so that you uh, would be able to see it later. I like that idea. I think sometimes, you know, hope is a is a concept. It's hard for us to to really put our hands on what hope is. So, you know, this idea that you can go for a walk and take pictures and hang those photographs on your wall, and that gives you a visual representation of perhaps what hope or inspiration is, I think that's kind of cool. And I like the idea that people are listening to this podcast and getting hope. Yeah, right? That's like, kind of cool, cool, too. Yeah, it wasn't my intention necessarily moving, you know, starting out, but I did want to make change and affect people in a positive way, so I guess that's spreading hope. Well, and from all the feedback that we've had from listeners of this podcast, I think that you've truly done that. And you? 
Uh, Wendy and I talk for like an hour. She's so interesting, <laughs> She's though. She's really cool. Fascinating. Uh, we'll hear from her again in future episodes, I'm sure. To round out our discussion of hope, I wanted to talk to a spiritual leader. Right. So I sent emails to several different organizations. And after a few days, I received an email from Reverend Dixie Black. Mm. She's a deacon at Christ Church Cathedral right in downtown Vancouver. And coincidentally, Larry, she told me on the phone, she has Parkinson's too. What? That's crazy. Apparently it was meant to be. Yeah. I invited Reverend Black into the studio. She prefers to be called Dixie, by the way. Uh, we started with her diagnosis in November 2013. Uh, what do you remember about what was going through your head when they said, Dixie, you've got Parkinson's? I think I was in shock for about six months. I'd only even known one person, and that was a member of the congregation who had Parkinson's disease. And I didn't even really know anything about it. Nobody in my family's had it. Um, I, I didn't have any experience with it at all. So it was, I remember the neurologist who diagnosed me saying, uh, we don't know what causes it. We don't know why you got it. And we don't know how it's going to go for you. Everybody's different. So I felt like it was up to me. I, I'm, they're there to, to help me, but I'm really going to have to take care of myself. And what did you do? Uh, well, the first thing I did was uh, make the decision not to go on medication right away, which was not helpful. <laughs> so, and and I why 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 make that decision? Well, the the neurologist that diagnosed me actually told me that uh, something that they used to believe was that uh, if the earlier you started it. The, uh, you, you would kind of use it up. Right. And then later on, I wouldn't be able to take it. And of course, they don't believe that anymore. On July 20th, 2014, it was the sixth Sunday after the Pentecost, and in a sermon, you told your congregation that you have Parkinson's disease. Last November, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And of course, I was shocked. I didn't know anything about Parkinson's disease, so how could I possibly have it? Since then, I've been cycling through denial and resistance and acceptance with an emphasis on denial and resistance. Acceptance is gaining more prominence, but it's still often elusive. Why? Because uh, I, for transparency's sake, I wanted to be authentic with the congregation so people people would ultimately notice things and i just think it's really important to talk about it i i didn't i don't feel any need to uh to not share it my clients know i have it uh i i teach out at vancouver school of theology my students know i have it so I just wanted I wanted people to know what I was dealing with. Many of them had, have been dealing with things for a long time as well, so sure. they knew. You had mentioned in the sermon that you're cycling through denial, resistance, and acceptance with the emphasis on denial and resistance, acceptance gaining more prominence but is still often elusive. Mm-hmm. Four and a half years later, where are you in that cycle? I think I'm much more firmly in acceptance now, I would say. 
And how does that feel? Uh, there's a there's something liberating about it. Actually, I'm not using the same kind of energy that denial and resistance takes. So the energy I have goes into taking care of myself in whatever way that looks. And uh, so acceptance is liberating because it, it frees up my energy to just deal with whatever's right in front of me. Since your diagnosis, what role has hope played in you living your life? Hope is central to me living as well as I can with Parkinson's. Um, I can't afford to go down the road of despair because it takes too much energy and it it closes me off to possibilities. If I'm feeling despairing, and not that I don't have moments, I'm sure, as you know, there are those moments when... uh, I I wish that I didn't have this disease, but I just I really discipline myself against uh, going thinking thoughts of what it what it's going to end up like or what I, where I'm going to end up. Uh, I don't I don't uh, I don't want those images in my mind because I think they affect me physically. How do you define hope? How do I define hope? That's a really good question. I, I've, I've thought about it uh, a lot. I think there's, there's an element of trust that's required to be hopeful. And uh, being a Christian implies hope because th- that Christianity is a faith of hope. And ho- so hope means to me trust. Trust that how, wh- however it goes, I'm not alone and I'll be, I'll be taken care of. I'll get whatever I need. When you have those moments of despair, where do you find hope? How do you get it back? When I catch myself feeling despairing, I think about my family. I have three grandchildren in their early 20s who I am very close to. And, uh, of course, they think I'm going to live forever. So sometimes it's thinking of the people I love, the people I care about, the people that care about me, that brings me back. Does hope have to be religious or spiritual? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so at all. It, it happens to be, uh, some, my faith is something that I can lean on. Certainly the, the community, the people who pray for me, I, I think all of that makes a big difference to my well-being. But I don't think you have to be religious to feel hope and to experience what hope gives you. Uh, thinking of my the people who love me, it doesn't have a lot to do with religion or a belief in God of any kind. I believe in love. Mm. What gives you hope about Parkinson's? Uh, 
Sometimes I tell myself it could be a lot worse. <laughs> sure. And as the doctors say, if, you, if you're going to have a neurological disease, this is the one to have. We hit the jackpot. Yes. <laughs> Lucky us. <Yeah. laughs> I, I'm hopeful that the research that's going on could discover things that could make a difference. I don't think I'll ever be cured, but perhaps they'll find ways of treating it, ways of um, supporting people that have the disease that make it easier to function and to live. So I'm I'm hopeful there. I participate in um, uh, a research project out at, at UBC where they're investigating biomes in the in the gut to see if that's has anything to do with it. So I think uh, hope in Parkinson's is that um, it'll continue to be very slow in developing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that the medication continues to work. I know I'm very lucky. Not everybody responds to the medication in the same way. So yeah, I have Parkinson's, so I'm hopeful that I'll be able to manage as long as possible. That's lovely. I find it interesting, you mentioned the researchers and the scientists yeah. who often are very left-brained mm-hmm. and, and counter to spirituality and religion, and yet we're, we're united with hope. Mm-hmm. Hope is, is the common denominator for all of us. Yes, Yes, they're they're very hopeful sure. in doing the research. Yeah, yes, I find that comforting. Yes, that we, we there is a, a a common mission. Yeah, and a common driver mm-hmm. of hope. Yes, this doing this episode has um, meant a lot to me because it's just in talking to the different people, the different people in our community that are dealing with Parkinson's, whether living with it or trying to cure it, and everything in between. It's hope. Hmm. Yes, it's all, it, we're really science and spirituality aren't that far apart. Shh, don't tell anybody. When you get under the surface, yeah, right. Yeah, and we're all human. We're all in. We're all in this together. In each episode, Larry sits down with his wife Rebecca. Where do you get hope from? After listening to the to the podcast, I. I put some thought into that and I get hope from lots of places and it was remarkable the list kept getting longer and longer and that's really um, hopeful knowing that even those things that aren't perfectly clear to us why Parkinson's is in our life how things are going to be moving forward what it all means in the big picture that it will become clear to us over time I find hope from the love that we have for each other and that our marriage has already been tested a bit but I can bear witness in a way that we can move through and move forward and still find joy and humor and all these remarkable things that we have in our life. I didn't anticipate that that our marriage would be tested in this 
kind of way and really be like, oh, so you've made this commitment? Okay, well, how about this? <laughs> how do you how do you like marriage now? <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you think? Do you you know do you still can you figure your way through these challenges? Can you figure your way through this day? And so far, I don't know that we've come out unscathed, but we certainly are making our way through that. And yes, we are. That's extremely helpful to me. I love you. I love you. And the other thing is just hope from watching you go through what you're going through and demonstrating such resilience and authenticity and a desire desire to use your experience and pain to contribute to something larger. There's inspiration in that and inspiration and hope are, are largely connected. It's an aspiration towards a purpose. Well, it's interesting when we started the podcast, my hope was to have a positive impact on one person. And I know from the emails and the tweets and the Facebook posts and the people I meet that we've affected far greater than that. And it's not just me, and it's not just you, but it's everybody who's contributed to the podcast. Yeah. And the people that are listening. I mean, we're, we're all this big community, This, and and, and we're, we're in this together. And hope is contagious. It's it's hard not to be hopeful around hopeful people. Uh, yeah, I agree that there's a community hope. There's a connective consciousness that happens when you are going through something similar. But even if you're just going through something challenging, and then you connect to other people who are going through something challenging, there's there's great hope in that. There's there's a a desire to share and be connected. And again, again, it goes back to love, I think, of just wanting to be, to share a human connection. And this is how some of us are finding that profound human connection and hope and resilience within potential darkness. Well, it's not even just potential darkness. It's real darkness. For sure. Last night, I slipped and fell walking to the bus. You called me in tears at the office, crying. Like, we, we have those dark moments. We, we have to just sort of sturdy ourselves through them because we know hope is there. Yeah. When, when we're ready for it. When we can have it. So you've also been looking for a way to make peace with Parkinson's. And Dixie, I loved the part where she spoke about the liberation that happens when you start to find an acceptance of whatever is occurring. For you, it happens to be Parkinson's. And back in the first episode, Parkinson's, we called it a frenemy. So where are you now in your own process of acceptance of Parkinson's in your life? And in your body, it's still a day-to-day thing. Um, I told somebody today that I, I have a hard dry, time loving Parkinson's, but I love everything it's brought to me, like the community that it's brought to me, and the, my perspective at life of life has changed for the better. Do you feel a resistance to the Parkinson's? Uh, I'll, I'll say yes because there are still days where I, 
uh, if I have a couple of good days in a row, I'll go, I still go, maybe I don't have it. I don't know why. Really? <laughs> it's I so funny it. that you jumped to that. I know. So rather than, well, maybe it's okay that I have it, it's, well, maybe I don't have it. Right. Interesting. So we're working on that. This is the final episode of season one of When Life Gives You Parkinson's. However, starting next week, Larry will be back. That's right. We're very excited to announce that When Life Gives You Parkinson's and the World Parkinson's Coalition are teaming up for a special series of podcasts previewing the World Parkinson Congress, which is in Kyoto, June 4th through 7th. What exactly is the World Parkinson Congress? Well, you'll hear it called the WPC. It's the only international forum on Parkinson's disease, and it happens every three years. This is the first time it'll ever be held in Asia. They're expecting more than 3,600 people, including world-renowned neurologists, neuroscientists, healthcare professionals, along with people like me with Parkinson's. Uh, when you say like you, do you mean that you are also going to be one of those 3,600 people going to Japan for this Congress? Oh, yeah. Going wow. to Japan. That's awesome. Yeah. Rebecca, Henry, and I are all excited to attend WPC and spend a few weeks exploring Japan. Uh, but before we travel, we're going to talk to some of those speakers, ambassadors, and organizers to help prepare everyone for this triennial Congress. Oh, man, Larry, that's going to be so cool. I can't wait to hear the upcoming episodes all about this conference happening in Asia. That's really cool. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So let's take a listen to what you can expect in the upcoming special series of WPC 2019. So it's this um, amazing opportunity for all those invested in Parkinson's disease to come together under one roof and hear um, opinions and ideas from all these different perspectives. The World Parkinson's Congress changed my whole life and how I live with Parkinson's. There's a great program lined up, uh, including a Nobel Prize winner speaking. It's an enormous program. There is a lot going on every hour of the day. It's a little um, overwhelming when you look at the, the, the webpage. You're like, <laughs> what do I choose? You don't apparently chew gum. And uh, you don't use your cell phone on the subway. Kyoto, I should say, is an absolutely magnificent place for those who have not been there before. It's really, a, I would have to say, a life-changing experience to, to go there. From Curious Gas, this is When Life Gives You Parkinson's. If you'd like to help spread the word, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free to this podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're just starting to listen to the podcast, if like let's just, this is the first episode you heard, go back to the beginning. Yeah. Start over. This is a, There's a lot of stories we've been telling. Social media is a real simple way to help spread the word about the podcast and raise awareness about Parkinson's disease on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, just look us up at, at Parkinson's Pod or email us parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. With a big thanks to Dr. Matt Ferrer, Wendy Eady, and Reverend Dixie Black. And thanks to you for listening and sharing your stories with us this season. In addition to WPC 2019 podcast, be on the lookout for special World Parkinson's Awareness Month programming in April. And join us for season two coming up this fall. When Life Gives You Parkinson's is written and hosted by me, Larry Gifford, and Nikki Reitmeyer. Dila Velazquez is our story producer and sound designed by Rob Johnston. Keep positive. Keep exercising. And keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.